This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. A very good morning to you. We are talking about burnout today. We are looking at what the causes are, how we can mitigate it, and what our schools can do to help us to get through what is proving to be a very difficult September for so many people. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Well, good morning. It is Saturday, the 23rd of September, 2023. That's where we are right now. It is 10 degrees here in Gloucestershire. You know I like to give you the weather update when we start our breakfast together. I think, had I been better at science at school, I might have become a weatherman, given how much I like to talk about it. Um, It is sunny, It is blue skies, so I'm not exactly feeling the autumn vibes, but I am understanding how variable our weather has been this week. It has been so bizarre. Um, We here in Gloucestershire have had blazing sunshine, we have had torrential rain, we have had thunder and lightning storms, and on Thursday we had all of those at exactly the same time. It was very, very strange. Um, and it seems like it has come exactly the time that um, that the lurgy has been going around in order to make everybody feel just that little bit worse. So it's, um, yeah, it has been a strange one. It has been a strange one here over the last few days. But we are, of course, well and truly now into autumn. In fact, the scientific autumn equinox was this morning. Um, We hit equinox at 7.50am UK time this morning. Uh, So we are now well within autumn, which is one of my favourite times of year. Um, I do like winter better, but, uh, but I do enjoy the autumn. Now, in case you're not sure about Equinox, um, according to Royal Museums of Greenwich, the Earth is tilted on its axis. Well, that's not according to them. I mean, that's that's just kind of common knowledge, but they do tell us this. The Earth is tilted on its axis. This means that the Sun illuminates the northern or southern hemisphere more, depending on where the Earth is along its orbit. Yep, that's fine. I understand that. Even with my rudimentary understanding of science, I get that. Um, However, at two points in the year, the sun will illuminate the northern and southern hemispheres equally. These are known as the equinoxes. So that's that's what we have hit today. That's what we hit at 7.50am British summertime this morning, the autumn equinox. So 
autumn is now here. Equinox, of course, coming from the Latin terms for equal night or equal darkness. So the day and night were theoretically the same length. We are, of course, now moving into when the nights are drawing in. We are moving into the winter season, which is my favourite of all. And um, yeah, I'm hoping that the weather-based portion of my uh, of my anxiety depression will start to ease off a little bit as the days get shorter, as the sun loses its strength, and as we move in towards the winter. We are talking once again about mental health today. This seems to have been a little bit of a, an inadvertent series um, for this September. Um, we talked already since school started about um, about anxiety, depression, and and dealing with those as a teacher. Uh, we talked two weeks ago about self care. Um, am I going to update you on how I've been doing with my self care since that show in just a few minutes' time? And then today we are going to look at burnout. So we're going to look at what happens when everything just goes that step too far, when it's that stage too many, um, and when it does start to not just detrimentally impact your health, but have a longer term impact on your life. Because um, that's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot this week. But let's start with what has been happening since I was last with you. So two weeks ago was our last show because, as I explained, um, I teach in an independent school, which means that we have Saturday lessons. So every other Saturday I am in school teaching. So I was teaching last Saturday. I will be teaching next Saturday, so there'll be no breakfast show next week. Um, but I'll be back with you the week after. So it's been um, it's been a couple of weeks since we were last all together. Um, in that time, I have presented at Leeds University. Um, there was a conference for German teachers. We were looking at how we can um, how we can improve the cultural teaching uh, within German language lessons because. As, as long-term friends of the show know, this is something that's very important to me. I firmly believe that you cannot teach language without teaching culture. I believe that language and culture are intertwined. I believe pretty much that language and culture are one and the same uh, because they are so interlinked. So I was, I was fascinated to go to this talk and to hear from Germanists um, from around the country uh, talking about their experiences of teaching culture and and what we can be doing. Um, I presented on Kinder und Hausmärchen on uh, fairy tales, and I talked about the Brothers Grimm, and I talked about Disney, uh, and I talked about how we as German teachers can and should be more explicit in our teaching to make sure that children understand that the uh, the Disney films that they have seen, the majority of the Disney films that they have seen, things like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, um, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, particularly all of the old school ones, 
come from a German source or a Germanic source, I should say, uh, because there was an interesting conversation that I had with somebody um, that I met on the train just by by happenstance uh, who was on the conference and, and we had a conversation about whether being Bavarian is the same as being German. Um, and and it, it's about making that explicit, making those those cultural references explicit to our students because um, and it was in fact Tim, who is a long-term friend of the show um, and a long-term friend of mine, who pointed this out to me uh, when I was bemoaning the fact that um, Spanish had it so easy because Encanto had been released and it was everywhere and it had done so well. And, and I was complaining that I don't have things like that in the languages that I teach. And, and Tim pointed out to me that what we consider to be fairy tale tropes, things like the deep dark forest, things like children being abandoned by their parents, um, the the high rate of of parents passing away, those are not in fact fairy tale tropes. They are, they are, but if we delve into it, they are actually German culture. They are Germanic culture that because they are so um, integral to fairy tales, are being interpreted as fairy tale tropes. Um, and I did credit Tim in my talk um, for kind of planting that seed when we had that conversation. I don't know whether you remember that conversation, um, but it was you who planted the seed for that. And, and it kind of occurred to me that we need to be very, very explicit with our children about these things and say to them, you know, yes, this is Hansel and Gretel are in this deep, dark forest. Do you know where this forest is? Let me tell you about the Schwarzwald. Let me tell you about the Black Forest. Let's investigate it. Yes, Rockhaption, Little Red Riding Hood, she's going to be eaten by a big bad wolf. Let's have a look at when there were wolves and bears um, roaming around Europe. And in fact, there still are. Um, the last time I was in France, we were driving through, um, we were on the outskirts of a forest, so we weren't even amongst the trees. Uh, and there were signs everywhere that said, you know, beware bears and beware it's hunting season. And, and so many of our children don't know that. So many of our children don't understand that. I told the story um, during my talk of the first time I heard Rapunzel. Um, well, I say it's the first time I heard Rapunzel, I don't know if that's true, but I I've, I've particularly remember this one translation, this one version of Rapunzel that I heard when I was younger. And it talked about, you know, um, the, the, the mother, the queen, whoever she was, was pregnant. Um, and she was, she had these cravings for this vegetable that, uh, that she couldn't get. So her husband went out and got it. And, and you know the story of Rapunzel. But in the translation that I read, or that I heard, the, the vegetable that the queen was craving was cabbage. Um, and I remember the story saying, because she was craving cabbage, she named her daughter Rapunzel. And that made no sense to me whatsoever. I kind of glossed over it because I was a child, so I was excited by the story. But I didn't understand why she was called Rapunzel and not cabbage. Um, and it took me ages to to 
understand what Rapunzel actually is. It took me a long time to figure out what Rampion is. And in fact, it wasn't until I was researching and putting together the PowerPoint for my talk that I knew what Rampion looked like because it had never occurred to me to um, to look it up. And I thought, well, if I, who teaches this language, who has done, you know, I've studied fairy tales at university, if if being a folklorist were a viable career option, um, as in, I know it's possible to be a folklorist as a job, I'm not entirely sure how it's possible to be a folklorist and pay your bills. Um, I absolutely would be one. And yet, it wasn't until the ripe old age of 38, when I was trying to teach other people, that I thought to figure out what Rampion looked like. And and so if if I don't know these things, then my children don't. And I think that's even more true now than it ever has been before, because our children are not hearing fairy tales. I've noticed this a lot, particularly over the, the last 12-ish years that I've been at my current school. Um, when I was at my previous school, and I would teach body parts in French, one of the ways that I would get them to remember Lupier foot was by relating it to the Pied Piper of Hamlin. And I always told my children to remember that the Pied Piper took the children out of the town by dancing and they were dancing on foot. And I, I can remember, it was about a decade ago, it was probably about 10 years ago, that I explained that to a year three class in my current school. And they didn't know the story of the Pied Piper. The reference didn't make sense to them. It was lost on them. Uh, and I tried again for the subsequent, the, the following couple of years, and the children still didn't know. They hadn't heard that story. So this is another reason, I think, why teaching culture is so important. Um, one of the reasons that the Brothers Grimm collected the Kindenhausmärchen, uh, one of the reasons that Charles Perrault wrote his books of how the stories were being told in French and in Italian was so that these stories wouldn't disappear, so that the fairy tales would remain. Um, and of course now in in England, or you know, if I can't generalize to the whole of England, certainly where I am in England, these stories are starting to disappear. The the children aren't hearing them. They might know the characters um, because they might have watched the CBB's Panto, or they might have seen Shrek, but they're not hearing the original stories. They they are starting to disappear. And ironically enough, as Disney is moving away from the 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 European fairy tales and is focusing more on things like Encanto, um, you know, and kind of leaning into the the Americanness of their company, which, you know, they're an American company, they have every right to do. Our children are not even seeing these fairy tales told through Disney films anymore. And so if we're not careful, they are going to disappear, certainly from from Gloucestershire consciousness, um, even if I can't speak for the whole of England, which in turn means that I can't speak for the whole of Britain, which in turn means I can't speak for the whole of the UK. Um, and I don't know, 
I don't know what the solution to that is, because I know that our early years teachers, where you would kind of expect these stories to start being told, they have a packed curriculum. They have so much that they need to fit in. And and so quite often when you're doing story time as an early years teacher, you might be picking an, in inverted commas, real book to show that you are making progress. Or you might be picking one of those books that is designed specifically for sight words, for for the words that you're expecting children to to be able to recognize without decoding. Um, And of course, fairy tales don't always offer themselves to those kinds of retellings. We are seeing quite an interesting trend at the moment in um, young adult and adult fiction of Greek myth retellings. Um, as a classicist, I love this. It's it's one of my favourite times um, to, to be a collector of books. Between this happening in books and the superhero films happening in cinema, I am living my best media life. Um, but it might be interesting um, if our young adults and adult authors started, particularly those who are not Greek, Um, started to move away from the classical mythology retellings and maybe began to explore the mythology, the traditional stories of their own countries. Um, You know, looking at the the jacks who occur in British folklore, Jack and the Beanstalk, um, Jack the Giant Killer, who are not the same person. Uh, You know, we could look at Arthurian retellings here in England, there are all sorts of things that we could be doing to, or we, there are all sorts of things that writers could be doing to um, to keep these stories alive that might not necessarily be for what we would consider the target audience for fairy tales, which we would think of as being young children. But of course, if you study fairy tales, if you look at folklorists such as Zipes, who um, has written extensively on them, then you will know that actually they were originally written for a middle grade young adult, even an adult audience, to kind of teach them about the world. And maybe that's something that we could be doing in order to to protect this this particular piece of culture. Anyway, that's basically what I said at Leeds on Tuesday. Um, but it was it was fascinating to hear all sorts of things that people are doing to to teach culture and. It was an interesting reminder to me that culture means different things to different people. And what I might teach as culture and what I might consider to be what culture is, is not the same as what my students would get from somebody else teaching them culture. And that's one of the joys of culture, is that you can pretty much justify anything as being the culture of a country. You can look at food and that's culture. You can look at music, you can look at cinema, you can look at reading tastes, you can look at um, decor. Anything really tells you the culture of a country. And so anything that you are interested in as a, as a teacher is something that can be cultural, that can be taught as culture. And that was a nice reminder for me because sometimes I, I will be honest, and I don't teach something that I would love to teach and that I've got time to teach, um, because I assume that it will have come from somebody else. I don't always teach the stories that I would like to teach. Um, I don't always teach the festivals that I would like to teach. I don't always teach the 
the etymologies that I would like to teach because I assume that somebody else is going to teach it. I assume that somebody else will cover it in their culture lessons. Um, and so it was nice to see the variety of things that were being termed culture at this talk. We had um, we had presentations on things as diverse as swearing through to um, LGBTQ plus issues through to um, sharing culture among sharing an L1 culture among L2 speakers. So sharing German culture uh, amongst people who aren't German um, and without the input of German people. And if it hadn't been for my talk, then the fairy tales wouldn't have been mentioned at all. The thing that I consider to be integral to German culture would not have been mentioned. So it was a nice reminder that, um, that sometimes as teachers we do and should just go for our own interests and teach our own things, the things that we love about our subject, that we are, as much as I hate using this term in an educational context, the things that we are passionate about, um, because not all of our contemporaries, even with our own within the same subject, will be interested in those same things. And so if we don't teach it, then it might not be taught at all. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. School suspensions featured in The Guardian, always a provocative topic. According to analysis reported in the newspaper, since the pandemic, disadvantaged pupils in England were 3.7 times more likely to be sent home than other pupils. The analysis was published alongside a separate survey of teachers who said that verbal and physical abuse from pupils had increased significantly post-pandemic. School suspensions have risen overall since COVID, up 30% in 2021 to 22, compared with 2018 to 19, but have gone up more sharply amongst disadvantaged pupils, up 75% versus 4% for non-disadvantaged. The analysis was completed by Who's Losing Learning on the latest available DfE figures for 2021 to 2022. Other groups who saw significant increases were children with social workers and children with special educational needs. The analysis also looked at geographical factors. The increase in suspensions was highest in the East Midlands, up 57%, followed by the North West and North East at 34%. The survey of NASUWT members 
found almost nine out of 10 said the number of pupils exhibiting physically violent and abusive behaviours has increased in the last year. Almost three quarters of those surveyed cited poor socialisation skills following COVID restrictions as a key driving factor behind the rise in poor pupil behaviour. When asked for comment, the DfE said it supports head teachers to take the action necessary to promote good behaviour. The TES reports on further concerns around recruitment of secondary teachers in England. Figures obtained by the NEU and NAHT show ministers are on course to miss recruitment targets by 48%. Numbers in all subjects except history, PE and classics are below the national recruitment target. The figures for last month, the final month before teacher training courses begin, shows there were 13,788 recruits. This is short of the target of 26,360. Paul Whiteman, NAHT General Secretary, said the shortages meant more children were being taught either by teachers with no qualifications in the subject, by teaching assistants or by supply staff. A DfE spokesperson said there were record numbers of teachers in schools, up by 27,000 since 2010. But unions point out that the number of pupils in state-funded schools had risen at almost double the rate of teaching workforce. Special educational needs has been in the spotlight after reports in the media suggest that the government has signed a contract targeting 20% cuts to the number of new education, health and care plans. According to The Observer, the cuts emerged as councils across England face huge financial deficits on SEND. This is caused by rising demand and long-standing underfunding, they say. Part of the government response has been the launch of the new Delivering Better Value in SEND, which supports councils to bring down budget deficits via early intervention and teaching children with SEND in mainstream schools. The plan's design costs £19.5 million, but it suggests a reduced growth in the number of EHCPs, targeting at least a 20% reduction. Concern has been expressed by SEND campaigners around the legality of such an approach. Ministers have denied that a specific target to reduce EHCP exists and that it was completely wrong to suggest the DfE is withdrawing support for SEND. Finally, a feature article in The Guardian focuses on research into the impact of pornography on the lives of children and young people. Abby Wright spoke to 10,000 children between 2016 and 2022. They were aged between 6 and 22 and came from a range of backgrounds across the UK. Wright is a theatre designer and did the research as part of the creation of two new musicals. The feature article called Too Much Too Young is available online but broad findings suggest that children as young as six are encountering porn online, often via pop-ups, but sometimes having been introduced to it by older friends or siblings. For nine to 11-year-olds, exposure to porn is frequent via platforms like YouTube. Children as young as 12 admitted to feeling like they were addicted to pornography. Teenagers feel that they learn more from pornography than sex education classes particularly those exploring their sexuality or gender identity. Pornography also appears to confuse the issue of consent, particularly for young women who feel if it is okay in porn, then it's okay in real life. Whatever our thoughts on such a sensitive and challenging topic, 
It seems clear that relationships and sex education needs to catch up quickly for a lot of young people. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. We have now been out of lockdowns for almost twice as long as we were in them. And that ignores the decades before which we were not in lockdowns. So at what point do we stop blaming COVID and do we stop blaming the lockdown for things that are happening? And do we go, okay, we were wrong to rush, in inverted commas, back to normal. If children were not being socialised very well during the lockdowns, why were we not doing more when we went back into schools in order to help them socialise? Why were we not reintroducing them to the rules of being in school, to the rules of being around people, to the rules of functioning in society? I, I feel like when we are being told, particularly when we are being told by the government, that these things are happening because of lockdown, the focus is wrong. We need to start shifting that focus. Okay, these children may not have learned their social skills because they were in lockdown during that development time, but there has been time since. But we were not given that time. We were not afforded that time. We did not prioritise that time because we were told that our children were behind, which is a lie, because my children were not behind. My children were ahead of where I would have been had we been in school, because teaching online gave me fewer interruptions, teaching online gave me more resources. And because we bowed to that pressure of being told, oh, we're behind, we've got to catch them up, we didn't focus on re-socialising them, reintroducing them to each other. We just hit the ground running. And I think we need to stop blaming COVID and we need to stop blaming lockdowns for things that have happened. And we need to go, actually, we were wrong by not standing up for our young people. And we were wrong by not taking the time to re-socialise, to reintegrate, to reintroduce. Because at some point, COVID has to stop being an excuse. It has to be. My year eight class who went through that, that short lockdown um, in, in the January, the second one where schools were closed, um, or where school buildings were closed, schools still functioned. Uh, they're in year 11 now. They've had plenty of time to relearn how to be around each other, to relearn how to, to be in the classroom. They've had three perfectly normal school years. And at what point do we acknowledge that? Uh, Tim has texted in, good morning to you. That would mean the government had to claim some culpability and nothing is ever their fault. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think all sorts of things went wrong um, with the reopening of society after the lockdowns, I think. Because, again, we were so quick to get back to normal. We were so quick to to assume or to pretend that this massive 
countrywide trauma hadn't happened that we didn't think about any consequences and and all of the stuff that we were told had gone wrong things like children falling behind children falling out of education um all of that sort of stuff because the onus was placed on the teachers and was placed on the schools it became our job to fix it we didn't have time to fix anything else we didn't have time to do the, the let's be honest the safeguarding to make sure that the children were right to to get back with their peers to be back together again so yeah at some point we have to stop blaming covid at some point we have to stop blaming lockdowns and at some point we just have to say do you know what we got it wrong we made a mistake and now we're going to do whatever we can to to fix that but that's a whole a whole separate issue i think that could be a whole show in and of itself but that is not the point of today's show the point of today's show is to talk about burnout i've been seeing on social media and particularly on twitter but on teacher social media in general over the past couple of weeks people talking about how tired they are now we're always tired every adult in the country is always tired um we need to we should be thinking about why that is we should be thinking about why we are working ourselves so that we are unable to function in our personal lives instead of just making memes about it um but we don't and we won't but i've noticed that teachers are talking about how they are even by their own standards more tired than usual about how they are struggling more than usual um i myself since the last show have taken two days out sick um because of panic attacks <clears throat> having gone back to school and we have just come to the end of week three. We have just come to the end of week three. Now, of course, going back to school is always exhausting. Um, you know, coming from the um, languidity of the summer into the frenetic pace of being back at school, it, it is a big culture shift for us. And so it does take a little while to get used to. But there is something different about this year. And I think that's something we can agree on. I would be interested because I know that I have, um, we have listeners who are not teachers, uh, but who work with children in, in other capacities. Uh, and so I'd be interested to know whether this is a, a countrywide phenomenon, regardless of, um, of occupation or whether it is localized to teachers. So if you are finding that this September has been particularly exhausting, please do let me know. Um, if you are listening live, you can text in via the Podbean app. Um, if you are listening live, but not via Podbean, or via one of our other platforms, or you are listening on uh, Catch Up, please do text me. Please do tweet me, sorry. I mean, if you've got my phone number, you can text me, that's fine. Uh, but otherwise, tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester. That's at M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, all one word. 
Um, and let me know how you are feeling this September, because I would be interested to know whether this is something that is just being felt by teachers or whether there is just something, maybe there's something about 2023 that is making us all um, all a bit more, it sounds strange to say a bit more exhausted, because of course exhausted is an absolute, um, but maybe we are more tired than we usually are just as a, as a people. But hearing what people have been saying, talking to other teachers, particularly where my focus over the past couple of weeks on the show has been mental health, has led me to do um, a one of my shallow dives into burnout. So if you are new to the show, I do my shallow dives fairly regularly. Um, it's where I just do a very surface level um, uh, research project into the topic. I don't go particularly deep into it. I just kind of read the the, the core literature, the the pop science, the the easily accessible journals, all of that sort of thing, just to kind of see what I can learn from it. And then I try and take you through my journey. I take you through what I've learned. So I've done one of my shallow dives into burnout over the past week, kind of while I've gone back to school, um, having gone back in from, again, like I said, I had a panic attack last Wednesday, and I then took Thursday and Friday off of school. I went back in on Saturday. Um, just to kind of figure out what burnout is, what it looks like, um, and and why we might be suffering from it. Because I think if you can recognise the, uh, the signs and the symptoms very early on, you might be able to put things into place to stop yourself from burning out. Um, because nobody wants to. Nobody wants to. And again, as has been my theme this September, I'm not coming at this from an altruistic place. Um, I'm not coming at this from a, uh, you need to be your best self for your kids. Although if that is um, what you need to tell yourself in order to take your time, in order to practice your self-care, then please do. Um, but for me, at the moment, it's very much a case of we all have a right to a life. We all have a right to be as happy as we possibly can. Um, and I think that self-care is is about doing that and about doing what is best for you um, because you deserve it. <laughs> Just because of the, the fact that you exist means that you deserve it. So this is where I will come clean and say you've probably guessed, but my self-care over the past two weeks, I failed in my challenge. Um, you might remember on the last show, I set myself a challenge to uh, be more deliberate about my self-care, to be more proactive with what I was doing. Um, and yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I want to say that I was too busy. Um, I want to say that there was too much to do, but in fact, that's just a cover that's just a mask for the fact that I didn't prioritize it. Um, I prioritized my marking. I prioritized my lesson planning. Uh, I prioritized book writing. I prioritized essay writing. I prioritized making worksheets. I prioritized photocopying. Um, my priorities were elsewhere. So I am here as a massive hypocrite. <laughs> um, 
because I'm telling you that you need to prioritize yourself when I have not been. But that's okay, because I'm a teacher, and I'm allowed to say, do as I say and not as I do. It's kind of one of the perks of the job. But let's have a chat, shall we, about burnout. Let's have a think about what it is. Um, I've pulled up Mental Health UK. Uh, that's mentalhealth-uk.org forward slash burnout. Um, just to kind of see what they have to say, because there are some quite interesting statistics here. So Mental Health UK tell us that burnout um, was recognised or has been recognised by the WHO, the World Health Organisation, as what they call an occupational phenomenon. They say the modern ways of life have drastically affected our work-life balance and stresses. Through our research, we've captured the public's perceptions of burnout and the contributing factors. So what's interesting to me there is this idea that it has been categorised by the WHO as an occupational phenomenon. It doesn't discriminate. You can be in any occupation and suffer from burnout. But it's that word phenomenon that I find most interesting. It's not being categorised as a pandemic. It's not being categorised as a health issue. It's not being categorised as a um, as, as something that needs to be solved. There's almost a positive spin on that word phenomenon, or at best it's neutral. Quite often when we say something is a phenomenon, then it's positive. It's related to the word phenomenal. But in this case, I think it's just being used as a descriptor. This is something that is happening. There's no judgment there. And I'm not going to lie, that is a little bit of a red flag for me because I think there should be a judgment. I think if we are recognising that people are feeling burnt out, that's a negative thing. And we probably need to be looking at fixing it. But while we are calling it a phenomenon rather than an issue, we are less likely to fix it. The other issue, I think, with using neutral language to describe burnout is that it can make it difficult for people to accept that that's what's going on. And I think, no, I don't think, I know, it can be much more difficult to call in sick for a mental health issue than for a physical health issue. If you fall over and break your leg, you will call in sick. When it's time to go back to work, you will have the accommodations made. You will make sure that you are on the ground floor of your building to teach because you can't get up the stairs. You will make sure that you have the five-minute transition time to get from one classroom to another if you need to, or ideally, you won't have to move classrooms at all. So with physical health, we we, without thinking, take the time off, ask for the accommodations. With mental health, it's that little bit more difficult because even when you are very aware of the fact that you're ill, um, even when you are doing all the right things, you've been to the doctor, you're taking the medication, there can be, I'm not saying there is, but there can be that little voice in the back of your head saying, 
is this a good enough reason to call in sick? Is this actually how I feel? Am I just a bit tired and emotional right now? Or am I actually ill? It's much easier to doubt yourself when you are dealing with your mental health as opposed to your physical health. You know, the the fact that it's all in your head is seen as a way of dismissing how somebody feels kind of sums up that whole mentality quite nicely. So to then have burnout being described as a phenomenon in that very neutral language is going to start making people feel that same way about their burnout. Oh, I'm just tired. Oh, I just need two more cups of coffee. Oh, I just need to make it to the weekend and then I'll be okay. And it kind of encourages this pushing through culture that itself is quite toxic. Because when you push through an illness, you prolong it. Taking time off to rest and recover is part of the healing process. And so if you're not doing that, then you are not healing. And it's just going to take longer for you to get better. So yeah, while I appreciate that the WHO is recognising burnout as a thing, um, I do think that maybe we need to be a little bit less neutral about it, and we need to accept that it is an issue. Now, for many people, of course, burnout is caused by not just that lack of work-life balance, but by the blurred lines between work-life and home-life. Um... I personally have never had an issue working from home. Um, Outside of teaching, a lot of the jobs that I've had, so my performance jobs, for example, um, my writing jobs, tutoring, they've all involved working at home. And, And so I have never had an issue with separating my home space from my workspace, even when they're within the same building. But now that lots of people are working from home, they do find that delineation difficult and that perhaps can lead into burnout. There have been quite a few discussions on Twitter lately about emails. Um, You know, because we are now more contactable than ever before, should we be emailing out of hours? And there's this big push and lots of people are saying, you know, oh, my my workplace is brilliant because we're not allowed to email after five o'clock. And while that's great in theory, my pushback is always, I need to send an email when I remember to send it. Um, Because there is so much going on, the likelihood is if I don't send it right away, I will forget. And so I I like that my workplace doesn't put that boundary in place because I need to be able to send the email. And I had a discussion with somebody um, on Twitter about this because... Uh, she came back and said to me, you know, why don't you just schedule the email so that it, that it, so that it sends within that person's working hours? And I accept that that's a good idea. Um, I accept that that is a, a solution. But I have to wonder why somebody else's work-life balance is my issue when I'm trying to also figure out my own. Why is the onus on me not to send the email when it could be on them to not check their emails? Why is it suddenly okay that we have our emails coming through to our phone? Because that's the, the, the reply 
is that it's really hard not to check your emails when they are pushed through to your phone. Why is it... Ah, forgive the motorbike going by if you heard that. Um, why is it that it's normal to have your school email come through to your phone? So I think when we are talking about work-life balance, I think there is... Um, I think there's a lot going on there in terms of whose um, responsibility work-life balance is and what is expected of it. Uh, Maxine XD, I hope I've pronounced that in the way you intended it to be pronounced, um, has texted in. Good morning to you. I'm so, so glad to have you here. Um, you have said, um, I've had problems with scheduled emails. Absolutely. Absolutely, because the other problem, I think, with scheduled emails is that you're trusting that they will ultimately be sent. Ah, Podbean added the XD part. All right, so Maxine, perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, with scheduled emails, you, you're just kind of trusting that they've gone. Um, you know, unless you're going to log in at 8 a.m. the next day when you've scheduled it to send and then check your sense, you're just kind of hoping. Um, and... That, again, is an extra layer of something for me to do for somebody else's work-life balance. Um, when, in fact, again, as, as Maxine has said, um, I agree to encouraging the work comms on personal devices. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even my school, I'm so lucky because we have been provided with one-to-one -one devices. So my school, last academic year, had a push where all of our desktops were removed and we've all been provided with uh, Microsoft Surfaces, um, which is brilliant uh, as far as I'm concerned, because it means that when you are moving from classroom to classroom, you already have your lesson set up on the computer and you just connect to the board. Um, I really like it. Um, and of course it does mean that you just switch that device off when you go home. You know, you don't need to have your personal emails, your work emails, sorry, coming through to your personal device because you have got a school-issued device. And then when you are choosing not to work, you just switch off. Again, I know that that's, um, that's not possible for everybody. I know that I am very, um, uh, very lucky to be in the situation I am where I have a device. But I think, you know, we do have to take our own personal responsibility for our work-life balance. Um, and I think expecting other people to lead their work lives around you is, um, is oddly privileged, oddly privileged. Um, Maxine says, we have a responsibility to model work-life balance as leaders, and it's a responsibility of individuals. The work expectations need to match to allow it to. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think as somebody who is not in school leadership, as somebody who is a, a follower, um, I think having work-life balance modelled by your leader, be that by your line manager, by your um, SMT, your SLT, by your head, I do actually think that's really important. Because sometimes you can feel guilty for having a work-life balance. And again, you this is not when you're made to feel guilty by your leadership. 
it's when your own expectations of yourself press a bit too far on you. And so I think, you know, to see that your line manager has gone out to a concert the night before, that they have planned something that can be marked in class so that they can take the night off and not have any marking, to have that modelled for you, even as somebody who's been teaching for a very long time, um, I would find that really helpful. And I think if we're talking about ECTs, if we're talking about people within the first five, 10 years of their career, they would also find that useful because, um, because it sets them up for what their good habits ought to be. We also then need to be modeling good work-life balance to our students. Because quite often, and I'm thinking now particularly in terms of homework, we don't really model to our students what is and is not an appropriate use of time. I was wondering yesterday when I was talking to my year 11s whether anybody had ever told them why they're given homework and what the point of it is. And, and I thought I, it is part of my job to model to them that sometimes you don't have time to do things during the day and you need to do things in what is your own time, particularly if you're going to benefit from it in the long run in the way that they theoretically benefit from by doing homework by having extra practice. But at the same time, I also need to be modeling that it's okay to take a break, that you should be doing things that you love. But I also need to be modeling that there is balance in that and that there are responsibilities as well. It, it's quite a big circle, I think. Um, Maxine, I love how, how you are engaging today. Thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Um, helps to break a culture of overwork equals heroes. Yes. Yes. How often have we heard it? Oh, so-and-so is such a great teacher because she was there until nine o'clock last night. And there, there is actually no, there's never a follow-up to that, is there, in terms of what so-and-so was doing. Uh, you know, so-and-so could have been sitting on her computer watching Netflix until nine o'clock last night in her classroom, but that's never mentioned. It's just, oh, she was there late, therefore she's dedicated. And we very rarely look at how effectively people are using their time. Um, it's it's always about how much time is being put in as opposed to whether that time is being used properly. And I think quite often we have that with our students as well. In order to not overwork our students, we will put a time limit on homework. And we will say this task should take you an hour. Stop after an hour, even if you don't finish. And so if a student does that and they set a timer and they say, right, I'm going to do my Latin homework for an hour. And then Mr. Lester has told me that I'm going to stop when an hour is elapsed because that's what I do. That's what I tell my students. But then they kind of Pomodoro it and they do an activity. Then they stop and they scroll TikTok for two minutes. Then they do a next activity. Then they stop and scroll TikTok for three minutes. They may have actually only done 20 minutes of work in that hour, but because they had done an hour or they had had their Latin book open in front of them for an hour, they felt that they had done an hour's worth of work. 
And so in this culture, and I think it comes from corporate culture where people just have nine to five, eight to six, however long their day might be, and they just get through whatever tasks they get through in that day and whatever doesn't get done can be done tomorrow. There is this idea that the amount of time spent is more important than what is done with that time. And I think that applies to our pupils as well as us as teachers. And I think that is something that can lead to burnout because it means that you procrastinate quite a lot because you want to to spend the time, but you spend the time doing stuff that doesn't need to be done. You spend the time doom scrolling. You don't get all the work done that you need to, and you haven't actually done anything that is that is fulfilling, anything that refills your cup. Again, this was something that I was thinking about yesterday. I came home from, from school yesterday. I was completely exhausted. I flopped down in front of the telly. Um, I knew that I should do some work, but I just didn't have the mental energy to do it. I really wanted to read a book. <clears throat> Fans, of, uh, Friends of the show will know that I like to read. So I really wanted to read a book. Um, and I didn't. I could have done, but I didn't. So what I ended up doing was telling myself that I was doing what I needed to do just by slobbing out in front of the telly. But in fact... I didn't do anything that I enjoyed particularly. I can't even remember what I watched. I deliberately didn't do something that I would have enjoyed. And I just kind of wasted that time. And I would be interested to think about how much time I waste um, pretending that I'm doing something that I like or pretending that I'm working when in fact I am just doom scrolling or blankly staring at the TV or whatever it might be. That might be something that I look at. Um, maybe for the next show in two weeks, I might tot up my 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 dead time, my wasted time, and kind of see what I can do to um, to alleviate that, to change that issue. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes EDAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen Adapt to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. Adapt. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. So according to uh, mentalhealth-uk.org, Burnout is a state of physical and emotional exhaustion. It can occur when you experience long-term stress, for example, working in a stressful job. According to a study that they did um, back in 2019, one in five UK workers felt unable to manage their pressure and stress levels at work. Um, And that's a lot. That's a lot. If you think about... Um, a school with maybe let's 
make this easy maths with 100 members of staff, so a small school, 100 members of staff, 20 of those members of staff are likely to be feeling that they are they cannot measure, uh, they cannot manage, sorry, their pressure and their stress levels. Common signs of burnout. This is really important. Again, if we're looking at not getting to the end of the burnout phase and going, oh, okay, clearly I was burnt out, but either identifying as you're burning out, this is what's happening, I need to take mitigating steps, or right at the beginning of the process, oh, I think this is what's going to happen, let's nip it in the bud. Um, the signs of burnout are feeling tired or drained most of the time, feeling helpless, trapped and or defeated, feeling detached or alone in the world, having a cynical or negative outlook, self-doubt, procrastination and taking longer to get things done, as we've just talked about, and a feeling of being overwhelmed. Now, of course, and again, this is a, a caveat that always comes with discussions about mental health issues, because a lot of those things are just part of being alive. A lot of those things are just part of being a person. I I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, feeling tired all of the time is a meme these days. It's just part of being an adult. It's something we accept. It shouldn't be, but it is. Um, we know that there is a lot of cynicism in our profession right now. You only need to look at any social media space aimed at educators, be it Twitter or Instagram, or teacher TikTok, whatever it might be, you will see that cynicism, ah, cynicism, cynicism. You will see that negativity. I, th I actually think that self-doubt is a healthy part of being a teacher because I think that it shows that you are always looking for what's better. You are always looking to improve your own practice. And I think that looking for self-improvement is really healthy. I think it's really good. But if you are feeling all of those things, or if you are feeling one or two of them over a very prolonged period of time, then maybe you need to start thinking about whether you might be burnt out. Now, interestingly, when asked to identify the symptoms of burnout, 85% of UK adults could correctly identify them, while 68% could not identify anxiety. So we are in this country more prone to understanding what burnout is um, than we are to understanding what anxiety is. And I think that that needs to change, not that we need to be less aware of burnout, but that we need to be more aware of anxiety. Uh, Maxine says, I think it's actually part of common policies that we shouldn't do things out of work that make us less well and less able to do our work. I learned this in the early days when I injured myself falling off my horse a few times. Equally, therefore, teachers should be encouraged to spend time doing stuff that makes them feel well. Some schools and trusts get this and actually call it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I I'm, don't want to imply, and I apologise if I have implied, that there is an inherently toxic 
um, nature within schools, because I don't think that's true. I think that most schools, certainly in the schools that I have worked in, um, and absolutely in the school that I work in now, um, I think there is an awareness of of teacher health, and there is that priority um, for 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 teacher self care. And but I think what happens is quite often we as the individual teachers don't always take advantage of it. Um, I, and I think sometimes we're not good at regulating our own feelings. We're not good at regulating our own self-care maybe because we are we're doing it for 30 teenagers or for 30 toddlers um and so we kind of we we push ourselves to the bottom of the pile but maybe maybe that's why i'm doing this series maybe that's why kind of mental health september has become a thing here on saturday morning breakfast to to encourage us to regulate ourselves a little bit more to i don't want to say take responsibility because again that's that's burdensome and we know that teachers are already overburdened but but certainly to be aware of how we are feeling and and if your school is supportive if your school does prioritize mental health then profit from that because not every school does not every teacher is in a position to be able to take sick leave if they need to um not every teacher is able to go to a cafe on their free period um, in order to do their marking or to just get away from the building. So whatever policies your school has in place, be aware of them, read your handbook, read your policies, know what your school allows you to do and plan it, be deliberate about it. We talk about deliberate practice in our teaching about making sure every activity that you do about making sure every minute of lesson time is scheduled towards the best use of your learner's time. Be deliberate about your out of lesson practice too. Be deliberate about how you are spending all of that time. No, Maxine, you're absolutely right. We are not always kind to ourselves. We're not, we're not. And I think some of that is, as you've mentioned, the kind of martyr culture that comes in teaching where because we, we do all want to be the best teachers we can be. You know, I, I say this all the time. Nobody ever plans a bad lesson. Nobody ever walks into a classroom and goes, I don't really care about you people. Just do whatever you want to do. We all want to be good teachers. We all want to, to facilitate the success of our young people. Um, and so sometimes we do fall victim to what is the stereotype of a good teacher? Um, working late, writing pages and pages of feedback that, that the children don't read. All of these proxies for teaching, things that look like teaching, things that look like work, but actually aren't. And, and they end up doing more harm than good. In March 2020, um, 46% of UK workers, as polled by mentalhealthuk.org, feel more prone to extreme levels of stress compared to March 2019. Now, of course, we have to be aware of what was happening in the world in March 2020. Um, 
but sometimes when you look at these extreme happenings that push people over the edge for want of a better term that's a good way to see how you really feel about it i i in fact remember being told that by a member of senior management um where i decided to give up an extra responsibility that i had um because it just wasn't serving me anymore i i had done it and i had enjoyed doing it um but there had come a time where i'd had a very negative experience um on on one of the mornings i was organizing something to do with this additional responsibility and i just went home at the end of that and i thought no i'm i'm just not doing it anymore and so i emailed to to relinquish that responsibility and i was like i'm really sorry that i'm having to do this but xyz and then the response came and he said that's absolutely fine sometimes when you have these extreme emotional reactions to something that tells you how you really feel and and it showed me that i really was ready to 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 give up those extra responsibilities so sometimes being pushed over the edge can be a good thing although of course it's always nice if you can nip things in the bud before they get there uh burnout isn't something which goes away on its own mental health uk says i'm going to repeat that cuz it's really important burnout does not go away on its own rather it can worsen unless you address the underlying issues causing it if you ignore the signs of burnout this could cause further harm to both your physical and mental health in the future you could also lose the ability and energy to effectively meet the demands of your job which could have knock on effects to the other areas of your life i am a very ambitious person i'm quite happy to admit that um just because you know i i believe in the whole live your best life mantra and so for me part of living my best life is is to 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 do as well in my job as i can so i have ambitions i have things that i want to do um both professionally and personally but talking at leeds university on on tuesday that's part of that ambition you know i like talking to teachers i like teacher training i like doing this where i can engage with teachers and with with adults who work with children in all sorts of capacities um in order to help improve practice to help improve their lives to just make things better but what i have found particularly over the last 2 weeks is that i have turned down opportunities and i've said no to things that i know could be career forming that i know could take me to the next step of my career because i'm too tired and it might be that letting myself get to this stage and i'm not suggesting right now that i am burnt out but i'm suggesting that i'm getting there already that i'm approaching it at the beginning of week 4 um <laughs> I've set my career back. I've set my career back. Now I'm not saying that the things that I've turned down would have revolutionized my life. Um they would have been extra strings to my bow, they would have been extra things in a portfolio. But they would have been extra. They could have led to something. Because what I've learned 
over the past couple of years is that the more of these things I do, you know, the more talks that I go to, the more CPD that I lead, the more of these shows that I do where I get to interact with people like Maxine, like Tim, um, who have been texting in today, um, the more other opportunities open up. And so by letting myself get to the stage where I've had to say, nope, I'm sorry, I, I just cannot do that because I'm not well enough, I've kind of let future me down a little bit. So an important reason to look after yourself in the present is to make sure that your future is everything that you want it to be. To make sure that you can take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves to you. Because you never know when opportunities are going to come again. As prevalent as it is, mentalhealthuk.org says, Burnout is often misunderstood, stigmatized, and costly, both to employees' health and well-being and employers' productivity. Now, again, in teaching, this is slightly different. Um, because in teaching, productivity is a double-edged sword. Because productivity, productivity within a lesson is not even 50% controlled by us as the teacher. Productivity in a lesson is pretty much entirely down to the attitudes of our learners. We need to make sure that we've planned the things for our learners to do in order to be productive. We need to make sure that we are being deliberate with our practice to make the most of that time. But our learners then need to engage. So productivity is, is a bit of a strange thing in education. But if you are so burned out that you're not planning a lesson to the best of your potential, or if you are so tired that when your lesson goes wrong because the kids aren't engaging with it as well as you wanted them to, and you can't think on your feet to pivot the lesson and do something different, then that is affecting your productivity and it's affecting the children's learning time. Um, gender and age also play a role in the prevalence for that 46% stat that I referenced just now. Women and young people report feeling more prone to extreme stress and pressure at work than men and older people. Now, there are all sorts of, of both biological and sociological reasons why that might be that I'm not going to get into here um, because the research that I have done on this uh, on the, the the biology and the sociology of men and women and of age um, actually is not related to, to burnout at all it's something completely different so I don't want to conflate the two um, but Again, this is another reason why, um, as I said earlier, we can't expect other people to regulate our work-life balance. We have to take responsibility for it ourselves because other people have different needs. If I needed a reduction in my workload, I need to express that. I can't expect my line manager who may be in a different age bracket to me, who may be a different gender to me, 
who may have a completely different home life to me, I can't expect that person to understand how I'm feeling. You know, you, you can ask for sympathy, you can, you can expect empathy, but understanding is slightly different. And I think there is a lot to be said, not for being bolshy. I don't think that you should demand the smallest classes. I don't think that you should demand a reduced timetable just because you want it. Um, but I do think that it's important to be explicit with the people who are above you in the managerial chain and just say, look, I'm not coping very well with what's going on right now. This is what could be done to help me. Is there any way that any of those things can happen? And, and then just see what happens. And I understand that it's difficult to ask for help. I understand that not everybody is in the privileged position that I am in, where they can go to their line manager and be honest about these things, um, because there is still this stigma. And you might feel that there is stigma from your workplace. Um, you might feel the stigma just yourself. But if you don't tell people what's going on, they are probably not going to know. Because as, as we tell our kids when they are feeling self-conscious about getting up and, and singing in the school play, nobody thinks about you as much as you think about you. And so while to you it might be obvious that you are struggling, it might not be to others, and that's no fault of theirs. It's just the way people are built. It's just the way our lives are. So I think do take responsibility do ask for accommodations that you need if you feel that you are able to and if you don't feel that you are able to ask for accommodations if you need them think about why that is and think about what you may be able to do in order to get those accommodations particularly if they are medical accommodations to which you are entitled so again if you feel that you can't ask for them then maybe go via your union rep at work, go via a trusted friend in the workplace, go via somebody who maybe isn't your line manager, but is part of middle management who you get on with. Try and find those channels in order to make your own life that little bit easier. Um, 23% of UK workers in this 2019 poll that mentalhealthuk.org conducted said that their workplace had a plan in place to spot the signs of chronic stress and prevent burnout in employees. So again, less than a quarter of UK workers who were, um, who were polled said that their workplace had something in place to spot these things. So don't assume that your workplace will spot it. Okay, but do go to your workplace and explain how you're feeling to see what can be done, to see what can be put in place. And to those 23% who work somewhere where there are spotters, where there are people who will see this, um, I hope you recognise that privilege and I hope you, um, you, you understand how good it is that your workplace is offering that, because clearly, clearly it isn't everywhere. Um, if you are an employer, 
if you are a, maybe a head listening to this, if you are a, a CEO of a trust, maybe if you are a line manager, um, there are things that you can do to help the people who are underneath you. Um, there are well-being planning tools available all over the internet that, that you can that you can use to identify when well-being is good and when it's not. And those tools then could be disseminated amongst your team so that they can begin to self-regulate, so that they can see what their mental health looks like when it's in a good place and what it looks like when it's in a bad place. <clears throat> because remember, you don't need to have a, a long-term mental health diagnosed illness in order to struggle with your mental health. These things are important to me because as I talked about extensively a few weeks ago, I have been diagnosed with depression and anxiety and and so I do have, you know, I have a plan with my doctor, I have medication, there's a whole thing. And so I am coming at this from a place of somebody who has um, a, a long-term issue but if you don't have a long-term mental health issue and you are struggling with burnout, that doesn't make your burnout any less real than it would mine, okay? Short-term mental health issues are just as real, they are just as valid, they are just as prevalent as long-term ones, and they also need to be looked after. We all have mental health in the same way that we all have physical health, and it's really important for us to, to regulate that within ourselves. Um, there are also, if you can face yet another risk assessment, given all the risk assessments that we have to do, um, there are stress risk assessments involved, um, available. Again, they're all over the place on the internet, but what I will do is I will tweet out the link to this article that I'm using as the base of this show um, in a few minutes when I sign off, so you can access the resources that, um, that Mental Health UK are advocating. Um, but a stress risk assessment is another way that you can recognize your own stress and the stress of other people. Um, they work in exactly the same way as a normal health and safety risk assessment. You identify the risk, you identify how it can be removed or reduced. You can then, you know, if you have one-to-one -one meetings with your line manager, you can then talk through that risk assessment with him or her um, as a way of, of helping to regulate. And sometimes, sometimes having that piece of paper can make it easier to talk about. It's a bit like when we get our students to do presentations and you have them stand up and they ask if they can take their notes with them. They might not need their notes to deliver their presentation, but it gives them an icebreaker, it gives them a way in, it makes them feel comfortable. So if your employee, if the person you line manage needs to bring their stress risk assessment with them into the meeting just as a way of breaking the ice or just as a way of keeping their, their thoughts together, that's absolutely a positive thing. There are nine factors according to um, the Mental Health UK study, which significantly contribute towards burnout in the UK. Now, this, again, was specifically over the lockdown period, but I think 
it's safe to assume that they can be broadened out into our our new normal. Are we still in a new normal, or is this just normal normal now? I'm uh, I'm not sure. Uh, despite the WHO's definition of burnout being an occupational hazard, not all of the areas identified by Mental Health UK are occupation related. And again, this is important because things in your personal life can have a knock-on effect uh, in your work life. This time last year, it was last September, I did an interview with my friend Teresa who um, who taught while having a chronically ill child. And we talked a little bit about what it means to kind of leave your personal life at the door when you walk into the classroom. Um, do go back and listen to that if you haven't already. It's a, it's a very touching, quite raw discussion of, of what that looks like. Um, but sometimes our work, our home life can impact our work life, particularly, again, in our profession where we, um, we lionise the idea of working outside of work. Because if you are planning to do your planning when you get home, but you get home and you find your dog has collapsed and so you have to rush them to the out-of-hours vet, you might not get that planning done. And that's going to have a knock-on effect. So we do need to look at all areas of our life and identify different places where we might be burnt out because everything is connected, everything is cyclical. So the nine factors that Mental Health UK identified were money worries, uh, working from home, which I think we broaden out now to those blurred boundaries between work life and home life. Uh, so work-life balance, essentially. Uh, job security, which does remain a worry for many people. Isolation. And again, just because we are not in lockdown anymore doesn't mean that people are not isolated. A um, survey into male mental health specifically um, into male suicide rates, mentions that isolation amongst men is a primary factor towards negative mental health. Um, health. Uh, your physical health can impact burnout. Sleep. And again, it's not about how long you sleep, it's about the quality of your sleep. Relationships, both romantic and platonic homeschooling children and so i think we can widen that out to um child care in general particularly if you are a teacher who is a parent of maybe a child who has become school avoidant or is themselves suffering from some kind of mental health struggle uh, and finally, caring for others. So again, that might be children, that might be elderly parents, um, other relatives, friends, whoever that might be. Um, just to discuss the validity of that study before we leave today, the sample size of that study was 2,099 adults. So fairly chunky sample. Um, the fieldwork was undertaken between the 25th and the 26th of March 2021. Um, so I apologise, I assumed it had been before 
2020, but it wasn't. Uh, the survey was carried out online. The figures were weighted and are representative of UK adult age ranges 18 plus. So all of the validity stuff um, about the study that I've discussed today can be seen there on the website, which, like I said, I will tweet out later on. Um, Maxine, what you have just texted is an amazing quote, which I'm going to end the show on. Um, so I'm just going to kind of pin it in my head for a second, um, just whilst I do my closing bits and bobs, and then I can't think of a better way to end the show than what you have just said. I would like to thank you all for joining me today. It's been a really good discussion. Thank you to everybody who is engaged and thank you to everybody who will engage um, over the next couple of weeks. Um, I am not conceited enough to believe that I single-handedly can change the way we look at mental health in the teaching profession. But I do believe that I can have a conversation um, I believe that I am um, privileged to have a platform where I can have this conversation and hopefully show people that it's okay to talk about these things, that actually we need to, because this isn't going away. This is our new normal. In the same way that, you know, we talked about how... Um, children were not being socialized and that is possibly what is resulting in the behavioral issues we are seeing. We are now seeing this mental health decline and we need to to talk about it. We need to explore it because it's not going anywhere. And in order to live our best lives, and you know that that's my philosophy, I want everybody to live their best life. We need to make sure that we are dealing with these things properly. So, Thank you very much. Again, I appreciate it. There is no show next week from me because I am teaching, um, but I will be back the week after. Um, I will, over the two weeks, tot up my my wasted time, the time where I think I'm, I'm self-caring, but I'm in fact just doom scrolling. Um, I'll report back to you because I will be interested to see what comes of that. Um, as always, we have some amazing, amazing shows lined up for the rest of the weekend. So if you are around and you are able, please do stick around for some of them because we've got some great topics. We've got Graham on at five this evening. Uh, we have got tomorrow the weekly review at 10 a.m., um, Omer is on Twitter Spaces at 11, Najat and Krupa are on at 1, Maud is on at 5, and uh, Chris is on at 8. So a very packed day of shows tomorrow. So please do, do pay attention to those, do listen to those if you can. And I will see you in two weeks' time. We will end on Maxine's quote, which she tells me uh, comes from Mary Myatt. So we'll make sure that credit is given where it is due. Um, but we need to remember that we are humans first, professionals second. We are far more than just our job descriptions. Thank you all very much for listening, and I will see you in a couple of weeks. 
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.